Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 25, version 4.4, recorded August 2nd, just after the Civic War weekend. Thanks for joining me today. Continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro is from the song T-Shirts, and our outro is Death of a Dream. We have our corrections today. I'm reading the novel Misery by Stephen King. And I was searching my streaming services for the film, and I found it. But I didn't want to watch it until I was finished reading the book. But, like, literally the very next day, I changed my mind. And I said, Matt, I'll just watch it right now while I've got the chance to watch an R-rated movie and the kids are out. And then it was gone. So carpe diem, everybody. <laughs> I, uh, I caught COVID-19 the other day. Uh, that was a mistake. I don't recommend it. That whole ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, that's a real thing. And I feel like we put in a bit more than an ounce of protection into this COVID thing, but oh, it was unpleasant all the same. And if you eat couscous, be sure to chew it as much as you would like chew like fruit or something, uh, because you'll discover... <laughs> remnants of unchewed couscous uh, if you do not chew it well dinosaur news today we're reading the chapter version 4.4 where dr Wu is imploring hammond to dumb the dinosaurs down a bit their behavior metabolisms are entirely unexpected and therefore not planned for as grant put it on the tour their speed and capabilities for coordinated attacks far exceeded even his expectations and he was on the front lines arguing for fast hot-blooded animals so this week's news focuses on Deinonychus, who reopened the hot-blooded debate like Tolkien reopened Middle-earth with Return of the King, and then some other perhaps unexpected dinosaur behaviors that far exceeds what was commonly believed that they were capable of. So we'll start off in 1969, John Ostrom's paper, Osteology of Deinonychus Anteropus, an unusual theropod from the Lower Cretaceous of Montana, revealed that Deinonychus was a, quote, very unusual carnivorous dinosaur. Quote, the species is characterized by a number of features that indicate an extremely active and agile animal, fleet of foot and highly predacious in its habits. It says, and elaborates that the common three-toed bird-like foot posture was altered in this animal as the killing claw was lifted off the ground while these animals walked. Quote, the standard tridactyl theropod pez is modified to a didactyl foot. Digit two is specialized into an offensive or predatory structure bearing a large sickle-shaped trenchant claw. A particular significance is the fact that this offensive structure occurs on the foot of an obligatory biped, they say. Why is this of particular significance? From page 139 of this paper, In my opinion, the foot of Deinonychus is perhaps the most revealing bit of anatomical evidence pertaining to dinosaurian habits and capabilities to be discovered in many decades, says John Ostrom. Grandiose statements of this kind are, of course, easily rejected, but the functional implications of Pez in Deinonychus are not so easily discarded especially in view of the other remarkable adaptations of this animal. Deinonychus must have been anything but reptilian in its behavior, responses, and way of life. It must have been a fleet-footed, highly predacious, extremely agile, and very active animal, sensitive to many stimuli and quick in its responses. These in turn indicate an unusual level of activity for a reptile and suggest an unusually high metabolic rate. The evidence for this lies chiefly, but not entirely, in the Pez. Given the inferred use of the claw for predacious cutting and slashing, it was strange to find this on a bipedal animal because using its hind legs for cutting and slashing would require, quote, extraordinary responses of equilibration or agility. 
for the claw could not have been used in this fashion as both feet were on the ground, it says on page 140. For animals that were somewhat envisioned to have been behaving like reptiles, somewhere between a crocodile and a tortoise, to have one that revealed itself to be a freaking ninja changed the entirety of the field of study. So Deinonychus is specifically credited with being the token animal that thwarted the sluggish preconception that dinosaurs were doomed to fail because they were big and dumb. This was at first blush, obviously something that was quick, agile, intelligent, and deadly. There was no mistaking this for a sluggish oaf. It didn't add up. And so if science opened its mind and started reconsidering what dinosaurs were, what other surprises were there to be discovered? Our next article is from 2021, many years later, where Arctic and Antarctic dinosaur nesting sites have been discovered. In Current Biology, they published Nesting at Extreme Polar Latitudes by Non-Avian Dinosaurs, where the authors reveal nesting sites, eggs, and evidence of reproduction in cold climates, like in northern Alaska, the Arctic, and evidence that these animals embrace, quote, polar-specific life history strategies. There was some consideration that, although dinosaurs were being discovered in cold climates at the extreme poles, that they were migrating into these areas, leaving to reproduce somewhere warmer. But new discoveries have, quote, generated considerable debate about whether they had the capacity to reproduce at high latitudes, especially the larger-bodied, hypothetically migratory taxa, says the paper. While evidence for polar reproduction is very rare, the paper reports, quote, the discovery of perinatal and very young dinosaurs from the highest known paleo altitude for the clade, the Cretaceous Prince Creek Formation of northern Alaska. Of the known dinosaurian families and birds from the Prince Creek Formation, 70% are represented by perinatal individuals. And perinatal meaning, you know, being of an age that represents that they were basically born yesterday, <laughs> so the expression goes. Their findings coupled with, quote, prolonged incubation periods, small neonate sizes, and short reproductive windows suggests most, if not all, Prince Creek Formation dinosaurs were non-migratory year-round Arctic residents, say the authors. So this is so far north that this includes environmental conditions like the extended periods of winter darkness and freezing temperatures, which would, quote, place severe constraints on the dinosaurian reproduction, development, and maintenance, suggesting these taxa showed polar-specific life history strategies, including endothermy meaning they were hot-blooded. To put this in perspective, the Paleo-Arctic Circle is at about 67 degrees latitude. That's where, I guess, the Paleo-Arctic Circle is believed to have its limit, 67 degrees latitude. And the Prince Creek Formation is at 82 degrees latitude, much further north. So it's up there, where they believe there were about 120 days of continual darkness during the winters. What types of animals are we talking about in this paleo environment? There are examples of Ceratopsidae, like a Pachyrhinosaurus, Hadrosauridae, Leptoceratopsidae, which are like smaller, more primitive-looking ceratopsids, uh, Thescalosauridae, Pachycephalosauridae, Tyrannosauridae, Dromaeosauridae, Truodontidae, Ornithomimidae, and Aviale. And Aviale is kind of like very, very close to birds. So those are two examples of scientific discoveries that buck the trends of what was commonly expected first of all in the 60s and then now more presently, uh, the dinosaurs are doing far more amazing things than was, uh, I guess, believed prior to those moments. And with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode, or maybe reintroduce you. All right, returning to this podcast is a friend who appears on this podcast almost more than I do. A continued welcome to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible first appearance in episode three, Almost Paradise. Today's interview will feature Tyrannosauruses, and will conclude with the bloated aging actors and ponytails. So welcome back, Christoph Oaks. How are you doing? Real, real good, man. How are you doing? Like I was saying, I'm still getting over this uh, this cold here, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well... 
cold or biological assassin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it snuck in here and it got me. So it's uh, it's changed the energy that I can pro- project with my voice, but I, I try my best. And luckily, not as much coughing, so we're we're doing pretty good. Yeah, big time. I don't know how I've managed to have waited so far. Everybody at home so far, dodge COVID, mm-hmm. like Neo in the Matrix, and I don't know how <laughs> I've done it. Um, Maybe I shouldn't speak so soon. Maybe I'm just going to jinx myself, but... You know, I was looking down the barrel, because it got into the house, my wife had it, and uh, I was I was feeling great. But of course, no, I got it too, and then I got it super hard. <laughs> but I thought I was dodging it too. I, but uh, yeah, I was looking right down the barrel at it, and uh, and it got me. So that's how it Girl. works. Dodge this. Is that how the line goes in the Matrix? Gun hey, right did up you to... see the new Matrix, by the way? I did not see the new Matrix. Wow, something else. Was it? I'll inter- tell you that. Was it interesting, good or bad? Oh, it was horrible. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. It was startlingly horrible. Yeah, really, really, really something else. <laughs> but, uh, That's too bad. Probably, especially for another time. As we, as we're talking about new things that are returning uh, in sequel form, tell me about the latest updates on the new the the new Snail album. How's that coming along? So close to done, man. Yeah. Like, so okay. The only thing we have left is I'm get, trying to get some um, backup vocals recorded from other folks. But the first handful of tracks are with my engineer getting mixed right now really hoping it'll be done soon i also like shot a music video oh, that's right. too but i did it completely by myself in the spirit of how i did the first album completely by myself mm-hmm. and i'm really not sure if i should ever show it to anyone <laughs> it's pretty bad there's like a in a way it's kind of fun but i don't know i'm i'm really debating it's hard to know, like, at what point you've just jumped the shark. So that might that might come out, too. Typically what happens is I'll recognize something's a bad idea, but I'll just get, like, too bored and I'll do it anyway. <laughs> so we'll see. But, yes, thank you so much for asking. New album forthcoming. Probably have a track from it out fairly soon. Wow. So how many, how many, how many new songs are going to be on this one? I feel like 10's the golden number. Right. Like, 10, that's... You know, ACDC's Back in Black is 10 tracks. I feel like that's kind of like the blueprint for good decisions just in general. <laughs> okay. So I think just 10 is how you do it, you know? You got to look at it if this was like in a vinyl format, five on one side, five on the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, there you go. So that's kind of what I... I think that's my rule of thumb so generally is just 10 tracks. So got 10 tracks this time, that's for sure. I recall you telling me that the the first album was something that you you achieved sitting on your couch during the pandemic all by your yes. lonesome there and that's it's yes. fascinating that uh, that all of that was able to to emerge um kind of under those restrictive um parameters uh living there what made you want to recreate that scenario like you say you're doing the video you do all the music again why did you want to subject yourself to that that uh loneliness all over again when you did it it just seems like sometimes, well, so one thing, I think that art withers without restrictions of some kind. Like, mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. just try, like, you need some sort of gutters in the bowling alleys of your creative expression. Like, there needs to be, like, some kind of lines you got to stay in. And usually, you just got to impose them upon yourself a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt right to make a music video with just the same amount of frustrations and challenges that I had to 
deal with for the record. Yeah. So that's what I did. Um, I did this with like a green screen and a green man costume <laughs> and and some puppets and a camera on a tripod. And a lot of this was done during a heat wave and with like lights on me in a green man suit. It is like 250 degrees. Wow. And it was rough. So like I think it looks like I'm not having a good time. <laughs> Because I'm not. Okay. Uh, so that's that's part of why I'm not sure if like it's even a good idea to do. Yeah. But I mean, I I did it. You know. There's a a perspective like uh, those top tier performers. Like I've seen line dancing. I've gone to shows and you get people dancing and stuff like that. But the pros are the ones that get up on stage. They're doing the work and they got that great big smile the whole time. And they don't look like they're just like you know trying to solve a a crossword puzzle in their head. <laughs> you know, remembering all the steps and stuff like that. The, the the best ones, the great performers are the ones that they're up there and they look like they're having the time of their life, which has got to be like the the next big, really tricky step <laughs> in, in doing uh, in great performances. And so I can totally appreciate if I, <laughs> that was uh, elusive in a way, because I think that's where the real pros shine is uh, yeah. making mean, it look like they're having okay fun. To look if, you know, if you're, if you're like a... If you're a shoegaze musician, you need to look bored. <laughs> if you're a black metal musician, you need to look like, you know, tormented and dead. You know, th that's fine inside of their respective genres. But I I don't know. Yeah, it. I think I needed to bring more energy to it rather than just like, you know, obvious misery. I don't think that was appropriate. <laughs> that's cool. So I know on the, on the first album... It said, band formerly known as Shrek 2 Soundtrack. And I love that. There's something, <laughs> something delightful in, in the playfulness there. Uh, is there a bit of a story behind that at all? Only that I wish that I had formerly been known as Shrek 2 Soundtrack. <laughs> Being in a band called Shrek 2 Soundtrack sounds like the most hipster-approved like nonsense you can do. Yeah. So in this case, that history does not exist. So I have just fabricated it mm -hmm. and you know let's say that snail was called shrek 2 soundtrack for 15 minutes one afternoon yeah while i was just you know eating lunch boom <laughs> done um <laughs> i just thought it was a weird funny thing to do and i do like the idea of um maybe sometimes going by that name as sort of a troll mm. it's funny because it's not like the shrek original motion picture soundtrack it's shrek 2 <laughs> it's a lot oh troll. yeah <laughs> absolutely i mean you, you're not going to be able to remember what tracks were on the Shrek 2 soundtrack, but you definitely know the feel, mm -hmm. you know? Like, you know what kind of music Shrek gets down to. Yeah. The Eels, Counting Crows, and uh, Smash Mouth. And then I imagine there's a bunch of films. Smash film. Mouth for sure. Yeah. I think there's maybe a couple, like, outlier Radiohead tracks. I think there was, like, a Radiohead track on the first one. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, you know, just the solid jams of that generation i don't know why shrek is just so hilarious like ironically so <laughs> for some reason just like shrek has now entered a new chapter of being funny in a different way and like a self like aware kind of a way they they sure and made I, a lot of those movies didn't they and how many people they do like six or seven well i think Was that dreamworks because dreamworks has no shame <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know if i've even seen the second one or not i know i've seen a couple of them i don't know which ones but I think it was DreamWorks, and if it's DreamWorks, that makes sense. I think that's the same guys did Kung Fu Panda, right? Okay, maybe. Because at yeah. one point, at one point, they greenlit like eleven Kung Fu Panda movies because <laughs> they just like have absolutely no decency, and they'll just keep going forever. 
<laughs> they don't care. How are we going to stay away from that? Oh no, I, 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 I'm full of segues. I got this. I just, my head's still just rocking here. Um, All right. Are there any cool factoids behind the new album? Like, is there? A, does the new album have a new theme? Or like, how would you characterize it as as distinct? Is it an extension of the first one, or do you did you find new things that you were interested in, in creatively expressing? Or it definitely has a different theme. Yeah. So I think the theme of the last one was kind of like, I mean, they're related themes. I think that it's sort of like a progression. The first one was supposed to be kind of about coming to grips with being kind of lost, kind of drifting, something I think really resonates with my generation. We're kind of got here under false pretenses. We don't really know what we're doing or what to do. We don't really know how to be who we're supposed to be. We feel like we were prepared for a different world than we live in now, and Mm. we just kind of, we don't know how to be sincere about anything. We're just like test tube babies thrown out into this weird environment. Um, this next one is supposed to be kind of about taking difficult steps to, like, the next place of your life. Mm. Um, it's called Charlemagne. Okay. Because to me, right or wrong, what Charlemagne represents is kind of like this period when Europe evolved from what it was to a primitive version of what it is now. Charlemagne, as he was told to me, is um, this figure that kind of took this giant rabble that was Europe at the time and got him under one umbrella and sort of started what became the modern Western world. So to me, that's kind of what he represents. Reining it in, getting your, your monkeys all in a row, and then kind of starting to move ahead as painful as that is. That's kind of what the album is supposed to be about. That's neat. Um, that being said, it's I want it to be warmer. I feel like the last one was exactly how it should have been, but it felt kind of like a colder, rainy day album, and I want this to be kind of a sunshine summer album. Okay. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Well, I can't wait to hear it. It's going to be exciting. I, um, Charlamagne's a cool I, name that doesn't, doesn't like, uh, hasn't returned to us for some reason. Some names are cyclical, and that one, I know, I wrote a whole book on <laughs> all the names I wanted to call my first kid. Because <laughs> there's no, there's no, you only get to name your kid once, and damn it, there are a lot of names that could have been, uh, could have picked. Charlemagne was one of them, I thought. That could have been, wow. Uh, Charlie would have been a cool, uh, nickname for, uh, for a Charlemagne, but, uh, you know, yeah. uh, naming kids is a, is a, a two, a two person endeavor, and so <laughs> you gotta get the approval of, uh, of someone else, and so, yeah, uh, we settled on, on some, so I think are very good names, but we put a lot of consideration to it, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't know if you want to say your kid's name on the internet or not, but what did you go with? We went with Sullivan. Could... Yeah, Sullivan? Sullivan. Yeah, he was a guest actually on uh, one of these episodes. Where did the Where did the name come from? We have Irish ancestry, so we wanted to use something like that. We always kind of agreed that uh, a good surname made for a pretty strong uh, first name, and so we were interested in that. It happened to be. A, uh, a player on the Toronto Maple Leafs that I was particularly attached to as well, which kind of fit the mold. Um, and I wasn't so sure what we wanted to do with it, but it, it matched with the with the, the second name we picked. So we have a the second name is like a family name that we added for, for his middle name, which uh, goes back on my dad's side a couple generations. So we, we put a lot of consideration into it, and uh, we're happy with it. <laughs> Here's <laughs> no what words. I love about it. Yeah. They can go either like ultra fancy, like Sullivan, mm-hmm. or you just go straight Sully. Yeah. And Sully is like a different energy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like you can, like if you want to, like you know, oh now I'm gonna hang out with my like my more, you know, 
tough as nails pals i'm gonna be sully over here mm -hmm. but then i'm sullivan you know in the fancy restaurants like you can really you can pivot quick between two very different energies with that name that's excellent it worked out cool so we're very happy with it that's for sure and uh, it was no yeah. easier doing it the second time around i'll tell you that <laughs> or we need to go with the second time we had a uh, felix the second one felix so again, I knew a kid named Felix when I was little. Well, it wasn't a particularly common name, so we didn't want to be like that. Like I grew up a Ryan, and uh, I don't know where Ryan came out of, but in like 1979, like one in five people got named Ryan <laughs> for yeah, a good 15 man. years. It's weird how that happened. And uh, weird baby name friends are a very real thing. So I remember <laughs> when I was in college, I worked at a bookstore. Actually, it was Borders Books, which mm -hmm. is a huge chain that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I was at Borders when those Twilight books were really popular. Mm -hmm. And in the Twilight books, there was two vampires had a baby and they named the baby some name that wasn't even a real name. They like combined like two people's names and made a new name. And that year, a bunch of babies were born and they were given that fake pretend vampire like <laughs> young adult fiction name. Mm -hmm. And it's just like... That stings, man. <laughs> like, when you grow up with, like, a name that's, like, not real and is very traceable to such a profoundly lame source, mm. that's rough, buddy. <laughs> like, that, that's really hard. Like, I, I do kind of have in the back of my, like, my mind when I have kids, if I have kids, I want to try to avoid hitting one of the very trendy names because you're very right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's an interesting exercise. I imagine naming an album would be just as challenging, and I, I kind of like that you went with Charlemagne. That's really good. To kind of point out what you said a minute ago about it, it was a name that to me at the same time felt like it was like had a lot of connotations in it, to it, but was still kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Like you have you think something about that name, but you don't know if you're right. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's there's right. something about it. So anyway, it felt correct. So speaking of names, I have been meaning to ask, so the the one track on the first album, so sometimes it's unfair to ask somebody, what does this mean, or why did you say this? Because I think a big part of appreciating art is in the interpretation from each of the users. So it's not about the artist's meaning, necessarily. It's about the meaning that it, it is it means to the to the reader. But that being said, so I, I asked this question with like uh, knowing full well in my heart that it goes against my, uh, I guess, my fundamental principles of appreciating art. Because you could find out, oh, yeah, no, that's a... You find out that you're a very different person from the from the artist, and then maybe you don't appreciate it quite the same way when you realize, oh, this comes from a different a different place than you'd imagined. But Adam Age Vampire slash Cat in the Brain is absurd. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I gotta know where that title comes from. Okay. Sure. Well, I'll tell you exactly. And I totally get what you mean. It is sometimes more potent when you invent your own connotations. And I think that I do like presenting situations where the audience does that. But I also like to talk. So I'll tell you exactly <laughs> what that comes from. When I was doing kind of the concepts of what Snail would be, I had kind of like goals in mind. And one of them was I wanted to claim for this subgenre that doesn't really exist, geek rock, that I want to be. I want to be in geek rock. I wanted to reclaim the genre convention of naming your movies after horror movies, right. which is something that you really only see in like metal or like goth punk bands like the Misfits. I wanted that. I wanted to say, okay, I want to establish precedent for it to be okay for a geek rock band to name their songs after horror movies. And so there were. That song started out as Cat in the Brain, which is 
a Italian horror movie by director Lucio Fulci. And I don't know why it's called that, really. I think that's probably like a phrase that makes sense to Italians, but doesn't make sense to the rest of us. Okay. But what Cat in the Brain is about, it's actually an amazing meta movie where the director, Lucia Fulci, plays himself in the movie. And in the movie, a series of murders happens that mimic murders from his hit films. And so he is a suspect. And so the real director is in it as himself trying to disprove his guilt in these murders. And so it's kind of about like life imitating art and losing a sense of self and starting to see a blur between this world you created and your real world. And those themes seemed really, really interesting to me to explore. So that's kind of where the song starts. But then as I'm listening to it more and more and over time, it just has such a surf rock vibe to it. It felt like it needed to maybe be a surf rock song instead. Then we have the movie Adam Age Vampire, which is a, 50s B movie. It's pretty un um, 50 or 60s. I can't recall. It's pretty uh, un unremarkable. I think it's just about. I've seen it once or twice. You know, your typical guy has to figure out a way to save this woman who's been in an accident, and in order to do it, he's got to like kill other people for science and like you know blah 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 blah. I don't know. I think that's what it was. So I kind of just thought, well, I'll just hyphenate it because there's no rules and I can do anything I want, and this song will have two horror movie titles, and also the song in my mind, even though it doesn't have lyrics, is really kind of about both of those ideas. It's about like the vampirism of what it is to be a person today. You work really, really hard, the world just kind of drains your energy out of you, blah, 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 you know, it's a pretty cliche idea. But then also I like the idea of your actions or your job or your role or your career kind of surpassing your idea of who you are as a person more than your own personality, which is kind of supposed to be, in my mind, what Cat in the Brain was about. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what it was. And, it, and by, you know, you can extend that out and say, like, okay, if I'm a musician, if I'm a rock music guy and this is my song, like, how much of that is just what I'm doing and how much of that is what I actually am as a person and, like, where does my personality start and my actions end? So these are the ideas that are in the song for me that all kind of just ballooned out of the simple goal of trying to make it okay to name your song after a horror movie. <laughs> and then the, the, the lyrics are so minimal, and I think that they're ambiguous in a way that you can you can come at them from a couple, a couple different perspectives and get that, yeah. that message about... Uh, I, I've listened to it a couple times and like... And, and it's meant something different just based on like what news article or something I read the day before or something. It's it's fascinating, and, and uh, I think art's wonderful like that. And There's a little spoken word quote in there, and I wanted I, tr I actually recorded it several ways trying to get it in a place where I felt like it could mean a couple different things. Mm -hmm. Because the first couple times I did it, I felt the words that I was hitting hardest limited what it meant in a weird way. So I tried to hit everything really soft. Because the way that I recorded it the first time it meant one thing but then when i listened to it another time it meant something different and i realized there was kind of some power in that so i tried to record it in a way that was as ambiguous as possible nice well mission accomplished because it did that definitely thank you feel good about it <laughs> about that and very very few other choices i've made in my life well, I like so this concept of, uh, of of having restrictions that limit you um, in one respect or another that require greater creativity to to overcome the problem yeah. and move forward. Have you seen the Chronicles of Riddick? 
Yes. So it's a kind of a goofy movie for whatever reason, but it was like on loop uh, on a movie channel just over and over and over when I was in college. And so I saw it a bunch of times. And I remember there were three moments that I thought were just amazing. Like they really went well together. And it, and uh, there, there's one scene where um, there's like this fight sequence and they, they take all the sound effects away and it's just like this drum beating and like quick cuts as, uh, as Riddick is like beating up bad guys. And then there was this other moment that was uh, really, really subtle. So like his, um, do they call it a Furion? I forget what type of alien he is, but he's of a dying race. He's like the last of his kind. And, uh, and so there's like this villain and uh, the villain gets betrayed at the last moment. Uh, by somebody who was supposed to execute Riddick, but then he, the, the character doesn't because he is also of this this race that Riddick is, and so he he spares him his life or something like that. And there's like this this weird twist, and it's very very subtly alluded to that this guy is also um, a member of his home planet. And I was like, wow, that was so tastefully done in, in this goofy movie that it doesn't it, it really shone bright. And anyhow, so when the DVD came out, I was like, nice, I'm gonna get it, and I got the director's cut. And if the director didn't go and change the three favorite parts of the movie for me, those were not his choices to make, and he didn't like them. And so in, in the, uh, the second, it, it, when I got the DVD and I was watching, I was like, wow, they've ruined this movie. Uh, the director doesn't know what he's doing. So who like, obviously the, the restrictions that he was placed under to make either PG rating or whatever. So I understand like, they had to take the sound effects out of that one scene because that bumped the PG-13 up to another rating when you have slicing and, and squashing bugs yeah. sounds. So they had to take those sounds out and they had to make a new choice. And then the other part was like, they went into like a whole backstory and a flashback. Like it was such a subtle moment where the betrayal happens and he goes, ah, I'm actually um, on your side here. It was so heavy-handed <laughs> in the director's cut, yeah. where there was all this backstory Absolutely. that he, and so just I can appreciate so greatly that even like whenever you see a film that's directed and written by the same guy, they get, and they're they're three hours long. You go, yeah, there's some choices that were not, you know, hard choices were not made here, and this movie's yeah. likely not going to be very good. It's, it's so weird. It, it's it's weird. This so I mean, you know, obviously there's exceptions to the rule, but. I think another good example of that same phenomenon is the Warriors. Okay. The original Warriors, fantastic cult classic, and if you watch it, like I guess it's loosely based on the Odyssey, but like so loosely that you don't know that really. If you think about it, you're like, oh, that's really cool. Wow, what a cool idea to take something and be like, you know, completely reinvent it to the point where it feels like a new thing. And it's like, wow, what a tasteful thing that director did. And then, like, you know, 30 years later, he puts out the director's cut where he's like, oh, by the way, this is about the Odyssey. And, like, the very <laughs> beginning, there's, like, this, like, ham, like ham-fisted, heavy-handed, very blatant explanation about how this is the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, just absolutely brutalizes the subtlety that made, the, made it, like, cool. Yeah. It's just nuts, because, like, I... The director's cut is like kind of the the version of that movie you can buy now. To find the old version is pretty tough, and it's like so much worse because he like really really deflates what was like so special about it. Mm-hmm. It's like movie makers who come in and, and say you got to change this and this and this. Uh, know what they're talking about <laughs> when they yeah, try to harness some of that control from the uh, from the directors. It's like Not they know always, what they're talking but about. Sometimes, yeah. And so speaking of like limitations and and making uh difficult creative decisions under duress you wanted to come back and talk about the the terrific tyrannosaurus film tammy and the t-rex or tanny and the teenage t-rex there's a couple different titles there yes (laughs) 
So from what I read about this, it sounds like somebody was like, hey, I've got access to an animatronic Tyrannosaurus for two weeks. Do you want to make a movie? Yes. And the guy was like, yes. I will have to write something then. <laughs> okay, so we got oh, so much to say about this, but I'm, I'm going to tell you straight, straight up, believe it or not, I think what we're looking at here is the best possible scenario. <laughs> like, it, it's maybe hard to believe, but I think this was the best outcome we could have asked for. Mm -hmm. And here's the, yes, that's exactly what happened. This movie is the result of a guy just having access to a decent animatronic T-Rex mm -hmm. for two or three weeks, depending on who you ask. And man, oh man, uh, this is Stuart Russell, who also directed Mac and Me. Oh yeah. So the last time, the last time he shamelessly ripped off, off a Steven Spielberg vehicle, we got Mac and Me. Yeah. Now we're getting his shameless ripoff of another Steven Spielberg movie, and we get Tammy and the T Rex. I gotta tell you, we are very fortunate to have gotten what we did. I, <laughs> I really think this was the best possible outcome with what we had. When I was watching it, there was this weird combination of some of the elements were really well done. The The casting yeah. was excellent. The oh, videography yeah. was fine. The acting was pretty good. The sets were a little lacking. The script was obviously a problem. The Tyrannosaurus was good uh, for what it was. Like It had a lot of good ingredients, but it was obviously yeah. rushed in a way. Like it was, it was a legit production, but also a very... B, C, or D level movie at the same time, and it it was a really bizarre mash together of of um of what they put in there, and I remember <laughs> I remember just being impressed with the cast. It really was that yeah. they uh they got. Yes. I guess we'll cover it as we go, but like it was it was impressive in in a lot of ways, and, and disappointing in all the rest of the ways. But it's such a bizarre <laughs> movie. Okay, let's let's be let's, let's be honest about this though. What, what were we probably going to get? Like we're hot on the tails of Jurassic Park. The dude who did Mac and Me has access to an animatronic T Rex. <laughs> what do we have every right to expect? Like basically another carnosaur, but maybe worse, mm -hmm. right? Instead, we get this. I'm very happy with this versus that. It. I mean, it's a pretty ghoulish movie at times. It's a movie that knows it sucks, but it's also like. <laughs> pretty fun yeah and yeah like the, the cast is actually kind of low-key incredible yes which i've got stuff to say about that we'll, we'll, we'll cover that for sure but shall we kind of break down the premise for the folks at home <laughs> so to somebody okay. who hasn't seen it what can they expect when they stop uh, and put oh, this into goodness. their machine <laughs> okay ladies and gentlemen so here's what this movie is tammy and the t-rex aka tanny and the t-rex aka tammy and the teenage t-rex is the story of uh, Michael, uh, very much kind of like the all-American boy who's a nice guy, played by uh, Meet the Deedles star Paul Walker, <laughs> when he was like, I think, 22. He falls in love with Charlie Sheen survivor Denise Richards, um, who plays Tammy. And they are just having a great time, everything's wonderful, except that Tammy has a jealous ex-boyfriend, who uh, is coming after Michael pretty hard. And as, you know, is known to happen, eventually uh, Michael is mauled to death by a lion as a result. I guess not to death, though. He's in stable condition, but he's, he's messed up pretty good. So he's taken to a hospital where local mad scientists slash 
venture capitalist Dr. Wachenstein, played by Terry Kaiser, who <laughs> was not only in one of the Friday the 13th movies, but was more famously the uh, star of The Weekend at Bernie's. He played Bernie. Yeah, he's Bernie Lomax. Uh, he's Bernie Lomax. <laughs> and in this one, he's the bad guy, and I've got to say, he's pretty good at it. He's terrific. He's, he's, he's funny, he's great, he's very entertaining. His accent really go, comes and goes. <laughs> it wanders around quite a bit. I don't know if he's supposed to be like an American faking an accent that just meanders or what. So his whole thing is he needs the brain of Michael. So he steals the body of Michael from the hospital so that he can take this brain and put it inside the cyborg body of a giant T-Rex that he's built for reasons that are never explained. His like long-term plan is to prove that he can make people immortal by putting their bodies inside of robot bodies. But why is the first example going to be a T-Rex? Nope, never talked about. Doesn't get at that. I mean, just what else would you build? Of course, a T-Rex. So it's a giant T-Rex that is actually a cyborg, but that looks like a real T-Rex, and it's pretty decent for the most part. Yeah. They put Michael's brain in it and just leave, and Michael is, like, completely unrestrained. He comes to, he is now a T-Rex with cause for vengeance who has, like, no shackles or chains or ropes or anything. So he runs amok. He gets some radical vengeance. I think he gets the bullies, but then also just some innocent teenagers, I think, too. <laughs> I think, for no reason. So he was like but a regular goes, kid. He was just like a re regular like football player who, who yeah. wakes up in a Tyrannosaurus robot and becomes right. homicidal almost immediately. He kills yes. everybody he sees almost right away. Yes. Well, the sheer power of being a T-Rex can make a man do crazy things. I guess. He wasn't homicidal going into the Tyrannosaurus. He just woke up and decided, no. I'm going to kill these two uh, bumpkins that are in here. And <laughs> If anything, he seemed rational, approachable, and pretty good-hearted before. Yeah. <laughs> but he wakes up as a T-Rex, and it's stomping time. He's just mangling people. But, you know, what do you do? Uh, and then, you know, after that, he, he tracks down Denise Richards, Tammy, and uh, through charades. I think that's what that game is, charades. Yes. kind of explains that I am Michael in the body of a T-Rex. And now these two love-struck kids have just got to figure out how to make it work. And that's the movie. <laughs> okay, so what I liked about this film, like, like I said, there was some serious production value that went into it that was surprising. Like, there was literal, like, lions, and, like, there must have been a lion handler, and a panther, and there must have been a panther handler. Like, they had real Hollywood access to, to something. Unless they just, it couldn't have been stock footage. Oh, well, let me tell you what. Okay. Uh... Funny you should mention that. Director Stuart Raffle, in addition to being the director of uh, Mac and Me, for a long time, his role on movie sets was animal handler. Okay. So, more than likely, he either handled it or just knew guys. For uh, sure. That's what he used to do. So, this this truly is this truly is an example of someone who just like had a T-Rex for two weeks and used what he had on hand right now to make a movie. And Everything in this movie was shot within a 20-mile radius of the director's house. <laughs> they just shot around where they lived. They shot with what they had, who they had, who they knew. Mm -hmm. And that was really the end of it. And you know what, folks? You can throw shade. But if someone gave you a T-Rex for two weeks, do you think you could have put out a movie better than Tammy and the T-Rex? I don't know. I struggle. I don't know. I think I probably couldn't. 
it's impressive in, in, in bizarre ways. Um, it is. So Bernie Lomax is Dr. Walkenstein, or Walkenstein, yeah. who, uh, you know, he's smoking. He looks like a Cuban Sylvester Stallone, yeah. <laughs> in a way. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Is Stallone short, too? Like, he, he's got in the weird accent. My word processor recognizes Stallone as a real word. So that's, I don't know why Microsoft right Word. In the world. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so he does, the brain surgery scene was really good. Was that only in the gore cut or was that also in the the original? So from what um, I understand, the original version of the movie is the gore cut. But it basically, so the guy that had the T-Rex was a Dutchman who owned movie theater chains in South America. And he had a friend who had a theme park in Texas that was opening up a T-Rex thing. So they, they were building this dinosaur, and he was like, hey, Stuart, I can get us a dinosaur for two weeks or three weeks in two weeks from today. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, let's make it a movie. And the idea was they'd make a movie, and then re- the director or the guy would release that movie in his chains down in South America. So Stuart makes a movie, gets him the cut, and the Dutchman goes, well, this doesn't fly by my Dutch sensibility, so I'm going to recut it for my theaters. So he cuts out all the gore, huh. and that is the version that shows in theaters. That's also why it's called Tanny, because <laughs> he doesn't know that her name is Tammy, and he recuts it and does the credits. So he accidentally calls the movie T-A-N-N-Y, Tanny and the T-Rex, because he doesn't know Tammy. So that's the problem. Oh and goodness. so that's the version that winds up on home video, which is the only stateside release the movie gets for almost 25 years or whatever. Until Vinegar Syndrome gets a hand a hold of the 4K element release, blah 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 blah. So the the brain surgery scene cut out and not seen by anyone until just a few years ago. Wow, it was really good though. Like the craniectomy or whatever they call it when they they saw into his head and they uh, they get that brain out of there and they're poking it. That was a lot of fun, and that was that was a highlight in the movie for sure. There's some decent gore, like, yeah, pretty decent like gnarliness every now and again. And then there's another phone booth. So when we did Carnosaur, there was a bizarre phone booth where the T-Rex just walks by. We get another phone booth in this one. I thought that was kind of funny. I have a note here that, yeah, Michael wakes up and he basically goes Jason Voorhees on everybody, even though he was a pretty normal kid to start. Uh, He squishes the black belt. I thought the squishing was pretty good. It sounds like they had a bunch of original songs produced for the soundtrack, which is interesting. (laughs) They would have to because that music, I mean, who... Who would have made that song for any other reason? I don't know. Like, I think one of my favorite like uh, small details in this movie is every time Michael, as the T-Rex, tries to do something, there's these little glove T-Rex hands, yes. which are like so far away from where the T-Rex's arms would be on his body. Yeah, it's just kind of like his giant T-Rex head, and then the arms coming up from un- like the bottom of the screen, which is like mm. anatomically hilarious. To me, it's just like something about how that's done is so inadvertently hilarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also, I think my favorite scene in the movie is there's a scene where Tammy and Byron, who we will talk about a little bit, which is kind of like a sidekick character, mm. try to dig up Michael's body to put his brain back in it. <laughs> and when they when they un when they open the coffin, he is just a mess in there. Yeah, and everybody freaks out, including Michael. And then the bad guys show up, and people keep falling into the grave yeah. over and over, and everyone is hysterical. 
everyone's upset. They keep falling in this grave. It's just awful for everybody. Yeah. And something about that scene is hilarious to me. Two things. One, somehow inside of the casket, uh, it was also full of rats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> full of rats uh, when they went to put him in there. Two, there is a legit stunt where I think it's Helga goes like diving into the 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 grave and like if her trajectory were off by just a little she would have severely damaged her neck <laughs> and she just she fits into this hole just perfect and like you know a gust of wind and she's going to the hospital right away <laughs> it, it was a legit legit stunt that she pulled off let's talk about let's talk about some of the cast really quick um you bring up helga mm-hmm. i want to say i got a couple notes here so i just pulled up my little notepad helga so a, a lot of people in this movie go on to do a lot of things or had done a lot of things, as we alluded to before. Helga's actually one of them. So Helga is played by Ellen Dubin. She did so much voice acting mm-hmm. after this, including a lot of video games, a lot of the Star Wars animated shows. Oh, yeah. She was also in the new Dune. Okay. And she was also in Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah. Apparently, also, Denise Richards says that Helga, that actress, uh, Ellen Dubin, was in such amazing shape that Denise Richards asked her, like, how she is in such good shape. And then basically after that, just ripped off her, like, workout routine. And, like, that's why Denise Richards was able to stay in good shape. So, So there's that. One of the lab assistants in this movie, one of the little cronies, is played by John Franklin. Who is Isaac from Children of the Corn? Yeah, he was great. He's, yeah, he's, I mean, Isaac in Children of the Corn is a crazy iconic character. Mm-hmm. And very recognizable immediately in this. And his voice um, is wonderful. He does like little, little, he plays with his voice a little bit doing, and, and it turns out awesome. He doesn't, his whole character doesn't have it, but when he's like being playful in the movie, he sounds cool. He does. And then I think the, the other character that's really, um, or other actor that's big to bring up, is Sean Wayland's in this. Yes. Who was also in Children Under the Stairs. He played Roach. Um, I think his name was Weasel in this. Yeah. But he's in everything. Yeah, he just shows up like a weird-looking dude in a lot of stuff. He is. And he is a weird-looking dude, but he rode that weird-looking face all the way to bank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with good reason. But yeah, like, so this cast is actually, like, weirdly super impressive for what it is. You know what? Writing... So like I said, some of these things are amazing. The The casting director was amazing but like the script was not <laughs> it just so many interesting parts that came together so well and other parts that just like were obviously black holes and talent <laughs> that's true so i think the casting director was Stuart raffle's wife i think oh yeah well she he must have the dirt on a lot of people was, yes it, what it's what it sounds like I, I watched an interview with him and he said that he went to work writing the script he had like two weeks to write the script and his wife put together everything else mm-hmm. in the meantime and they just like shot the movie within 20 miles of their house what they had and who they could find and I think like Fortune just really smiled on them because they got a lot of really really talented folks and you know what yeah the, the script is really terrible but again man the clock's ticking you're gonna have a, t- a T-Rex for like yeah. two wonderful weeks and you don't have a lot of time to figure out what you're gonna do with it what would you do? I don't know what I would do. I think I can't imagine what movie I would make. That's a fun thought exercise, but I'm surprised he didn't film the sequel while he was at it. 
it's a it's a very ghoulish movie though it is there's a lot of like grave robbing and like breaking into morgues and like yeah check out cadavers and stuff yeah there's a lot of that in here but it's it's it knows that it's goofy like it, this is a mm. zany movie knows that it's very dumb there's a a really really good performance by the minister during the funeral i remember that guy his timing and delivery were just spot on. I don't know who he was, but I remember being really impressed with the minister uh, during the funeral. I thought that Billy, the 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 guy fresh out of jail, had a real yep. David Duchovny look to him, sort of. <laughs> That's kind of neat. I really like, oh, in, in terms of good dialogue, I think that a lot of people just winged it. <laughs> like, there's one line where, where what's, uh, Tammy says, I never want to see you for the rest of my life, ever. <laughs> I mean, there's some, that's there's some finality to that. I oh man, I don't remember the name of the guy that played Byron, but I thought Byron was a real standout. In this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the character of Byron is a is kind of Tammy's sidekick, but at the same time, so much rides on him in this movie, and um, he is at the same time wildly offensive, but I think weirdly progressive. I think this is an example of like the early '90s doing their best to be progressive, but doing it from a position of just like such deeply ingrained bigotry that they almost can't really do it right. Mm -hmm. But like, this is a character that is—he's a black guy who dresses as like Afrocentric as he can. And he's also a homosexual, and they portray him in a very clown-like way. Mm -hmm. But he's also just embraced and loved, never belittled. And shown to be a very uh, loved and valuable member of, like, his friend group universally. Like, nobody has a problem, really, with Byron. Mm -hmm. A couple of the cops act like he's, you know, a couple of co the cops say some disparaging things about him. But mm -hmm. the cops are kind of like buffoons who are mostly kind of, you're meant to hate anyway. Yeah. I don't know. But the character of Byron is pretty funny. He's the son of the sheriff, so he can kind of get away with a little bit more than everybody else. And Tammy kind of relies on that when she's doing some of her, like, shenanigans. I remember there's a part where he's driving the truck that has the T-Rex in the back of it, and the cops are trying to get him to stop. And he, he like, knows the cops on a first-name basis because his dad's the sheriff or whatever. Yeah. And they're like, Byron, slow down. He goes, I didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, you stole a dinosaur. And he's just like, he's my friend, Merle, and I'm keeping him. And he, like, drives off or something <laughs> like that. And something about his delivery was really funny to me. I think that character is really good, and it's, it is kind of interesting, because it is, at the same time, I think, good intentions handled badly. Mm. I think uh, we were talking about um, the Michael's brain charades. I think that was goofy, and had they done it just a little different, I think that, that bit where he um, bites the yellow rose could have been the perfect you know, uh, culmination of that charade. It's like, ah, yes, but they do it right up the very first thing they do is bite the rose and then they play the silly charades afterwards. It's like, ah, oh, they, they should have switched that around. I think that would have been a better way to do it because it was a nice image because uh, uh, Michael, she can't, Tammy can't accept the rose from Michael because she has the jealous ex-boyfriend and so she needs yep. to not date him even though I think they are dating and are in love but they're not because she's not allowed to date him. I don't know how that even plays out because yep. it was written poorly. Uh, but then, so be, she returns the rose and he and he bites it because he has to, I guess, get rid of it, but he's being cute. And I thought that was really yep. well done. And it was a great callback when they do the charades. I think they just could have played it a little little better. I think that's really the, the message of this whole film is it could have been better. <laughs> I actually 
think that's brilliant. Like, if he had kind of, like, bit the rose and that had been what, like, proved, like, you yeah. know, what told her. Yeah, that should have been all she needed right there. Absolutely. Um, that would that would have been great. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that, you know, this is a pretty glaring example of a movie made quickly uh, because of what was available versus, you know, th- there's no greater example of, like, artistic work under restraints than this. Like, restraints that basically decided almost every factor of what the movie was going to be. There was almost no creative choices made. Do you know what the budget was? No, I don't, actually. Can you imagine how um, much money they burned through in two weeks <laughs> to make this thing? You know what? Let me see if uh, IMDb might tell us. Let's go ahead and take a gander, folks, and see what does IMDb say about the budget. And I think in the meantime... Denise Richards is awesome in this. Like, nobody else has to play it straight. Everybody else is like a stock, goofy character that uh, is just clowning around, basically having fun as best as they can. But she's got to be invested. She's got to be emotional. She's got to act against this goofy Tyrannosaurus. She's got to say all the dumb lines, and she's got to, like, be crying all the time. She really turns it on, and she does it She does it all out. Like, she doesn't... Whatever fear she might have had making this terrible movie, she didn't show it. So she was a pro, and she did a she did a legit job. Paul Walker is hardly in this thing. Correct. <laughs> he gets killed right away, and then uh, he doesn't even have a voice. Like, well, I guess at the end he does, but like it's so rotten that she has to carry this whole thing. And everybody else is good, but she's awesome. And I think yes. I, she this might be might be I don't know. You tell me. Like her best performance in her career. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, man. Maybe. So, okay, really quickly, IMDb is estimating a million dollars, and that does jog my memory. I seem to recall the director was Stuart Raffles saying that the gentleman who owned the theater chains budgeted it, and a million was about what it was. So I think it's about a million dollars. I know that this is one of the earlier things that Denise Richards did. She did some TV before this, and I think she did a couple tiny roles in movies, but this is her first big starring role. And yeah, she does a really good job. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Denise Richards in a whole lot of movies. She was what? What are some roles she's even been in? She's in Wild Things. She's in Star Troopers. Yeah, uh, they actually. So there's an interview with her on the um, Bigger, Vinegar Syndrome 4K Blu-ray for this, and that in and of itself, I think, says a lot that she's actually got a good attitude. She's willing to talk mm-hmm. about this movie. A lot of other people would just kind of want to sweep under the rug. But she's all smiles, and she says it was a lot of fun. She says that she was convinced she was going to get fired most of the time, and she was just trying really hard to do a good job. Yeah, she, I think she, I think she did great, and she seems to be pretty cool about it too. So that mm-hmm. says a lot. It's amazing because she, you're right, is a big, big name now. For yeah. I mean, I don't know what she's really done, but she's a huge name for for what she's made a big career out of not very much, which is pretty impressive. Like she's for yeah. real. She's a Hollywood star. And yeah, she was she didn't cheat anybody. Like she was excellent. She didn't uh yeah. her she earned her paycheck for sure. I think pretty much everybody does a good job in this movie mm-hmm. on camera. <laughs> <laughs> um the the acting is all like all the actors do a pretty good job. I, I do think that maybe maybe Terry Kaiser as the bad guy is the real standout. Mm-hmm. He's really funny, he's really good. He does a great you know, ambiguously European mad scientist capitalist villain. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, the gore is pretty decent, and it's and it's a silly, somewhat funny movie. I just don't think that 
if I was a gambling man, I don't think I would have guessed we would get something as watchable from as as this out mm-hmm. of Stewart being given an animatronic T Rex for two weeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that this maybe is unfairly put against like by comparison other films because I don't know that other films are made this way and it's almost a little unfair to say like here was like a crazy lightning in a bottle sort of opportunity that they made a film out of versus other films are usually produced much more (laughs) with much more preparation and things like that so I think this is the second best dinosaur based movie of the early (laughs) 90s I do think so maybe I think it's Jurassic Park and then Tammy and the T-Rex and everything else is in distant third like really (laughs) It's, I mean, come at me. I know Theodore Rex with Whoopi Goldberg is out there. The Mario Brothers adaptation is out there. And I'm standing by it. I think Tammy and the T-Rex stands the test of time. I think it's uh, weirdly enjoyable. Yeah, and it was, it's not too long. Like, it doesn't drag on. <laughs> it's about 90 minutes on the dot, more or less, I think. I think it's like 91 minutes. I, I, I would say that this is going to be in the uh, Paul Walker Holy Trilogy of Tammy and the T-Rex, Meet the Deedles, and Monster in the Closet, okay. which is a movie Paul Walker was in when he was like eight years old, where he plays a child prodigy scientist that has to fight a monster that teleports from closet to closet and threatens to destroy the planet. Um, As they do. Highly yeah. recommended. Well, speaking of well-produced, well-acted films that come out of the 90s, you took upon yourself a flogging or self-flagellation project uh, to stop and watch every Steven Seagal movie made. What made you That's think correct. that that was a good idea, and how is it going? <laughs> well, nothing made me think it was a good idea, because it's not. It's going okay. I just finished, uh, which one was it? Fire Down Below, I think. So Steven Seagal's always terrible. Mm-hmm. But some of these early movies are, like, not that bad because they're kind of just, like, typical cookie-cutter early 90s action films. He is just a, a clown pretty much in all of them. They're very cliche. He's pretty awful. But some of them aren't that terrible. You know, they're cliche and they're dumb, but they're fairly watchable. But I am very quickly going to get to a point where that's no longer the case. Mm-hmm. I am, um, the time of... Even close to watchable Steven Seagal movies is just about to, to close on me. And I'm going to be thrown into a, a world of just constant. That's very, very rapidly approaching me as I work my way through these movies. So but, you're going um, chronologically? Is that how it plays out? Yeah, I'm doing it chronologically. Started at the beginning, the first one, which was Above the Law, and uh, just working through them somewhat slowly, you know, pacing myself a little bit. But. When this is over, I kind of think I will have been the only person on the planet to watch every Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> I don't I don't think even he has done that. Because it is such a bad idea. But, you know, here we are. I'm going to do it. I don't know why. I bought them all, too. I own them all. They're in my home. Oh, man. You could, you could, yeah. have, a, you could have a museum now. I think that's Steven Seagal Museum. I, I think this is like, I need to write into, like, my will that if I pass away one of my friends needs to get rid of those before anyone can invest investigate my home like that's the thing I'm embarrassed that people will find in my house I wonder where he went from like bankable potentially something 
to a caricature of himself, but he doesn't even know it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Definitely. Um, so apparently a lot of his early work was pretty much bankrolled by the mob. Oh, yeah? It seems to be the case. Yeah, it seems to be the case. Uh, and so he was in a position where he was kind of like from the outside doing well, but in reality, all of his money was pretty much just going right to them. I also think maybe he's just got something wrong with him because if you look at a, all of his like interviews, he tells so many highly contradictory lies about who he is as a person in interviews that it's just wild. Like he he would need to have lived a hundred lifetimes for any of these things to be true, and they're demonstrably untrue. I think there was like one adventure he went on where he'd been talking about how he was a Navy SEAL, Green Beret, ex mafia. Uh, mercenary soldier for hire like in magazines like this was true so he hooked up with somebody who was actually like something of a mercenary and he was like hey I know where some treasure is on this island you want to help us go get it and he agreed and apparently he couldn't even get out of the like little rowboat that they like rowed up to the beach he couldn't get out without falling in the water it was awful and at the end of it one of the, the guys who was on the mission with him said this if you took Steven Seagal and dropped him in a forest a mile from a restaurant with a compass and a map, he would definitely starve to death. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just like, I don't know if there's something wrong with him or if he just like bought into his own hype to the point where he can't tell how obvious it is that he's lying. I do think that in Hollywood there's a phenomenon where people are so surrounded by yes-men that they lose the ability to self-critique their own nonsense. Maybe he's a victim of that, I don't know. But... It's intense. Well, I hope you're enjoying the films. <laughs> it sounds like sounds like uh, the worst idea ever, but I'm glad it's bringing it's you some like, joy. It's kind of like I think power lifters. Like, does a power lifter enjoy the pain of like trying to lift something heavy? Definitely not. But he enjoys afterwards knowing that he has overcome this. I think that's where I'm at. Like, I'm not enjoying this, but when it's over. I will feel like I've, like, made it through the gauntlet. <laughs> there will be a homecoming and a parade <laughs> to celebrate your return from from this chore, your Herculean task. Penance might be a good way to put it. I don't know. It's just, it, it's a trial, but it's a Herculean trial I need to overcome. So, here we go. I'm, I'm going through it as quick as I can. Well, it looks like we're almost out of time here. When can people expect uh, the new album? What do you think? I'm hoping by the end of the year, but uh, it's hard. It's hard to predict these things. Um, but hopefully by the end of the year. Right on. That's really cool. I'm excited for you, man. It blew. Thank like you. I was so surprised. Like I had no idea that you did anything like this. And when you just say, "Well, I dropped something here" or something like that, and uh, you click on the link and you check it out, it just wasn't what I was expecting that day at all. And it. it Blew me away. I was really impressed. So well, now, I, now I see it coming. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Let's hope uh, I can pull it off twice in a row. But thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. Oh, it's super cool. I'm so glad you could come back. This is amazing. Yeah, dude. Uh, we'll have to find something else dinosaur related at some point to talk about. I'll, I shall. I shall peruse my shelves. <laughs> Will you let me know. Well, I'm so glad I found the gore cut too. That was exciting. Yeah. Best version to see for sure. Special thank you to my returning guest, Christoph Oaks of Snail. 
Thanks, Chris. The text this week is version 4.4, a chapter spanning from pages 120 to 126. A synopsis. Wu, Dr. Henry Wu, approaches Hammond to discuss restocking the park with version 4.4. The dinosaurs are too fast, but he thinks he could tweak them so they meet the visitors' expectations. And this would be uh, what would be seen in version 4.4. But Hammond isn't listening anymore, and he dismisses Henry Wu. Characters. We get John Hammond, of course. Hammond wonders if Wu's explanations about cloning were well-received by the consultants, and Wu changes the subject. He has no interest in talking about version 4.4. As Wu's recruiter, Hammond regards his employee with a patient and paternal ambiance. we're told on page 120. But now that Wu's work is complete and almost fully automated, Hammond doesn't listen to him as much anymore. We learn that Hammond, quote, hardly ever even visits the island anymore on page 121. Hammond has never been interested in the technical details. Then he becomes dismissive with Wu, ushering him out the door, trying to reassure the scientist that he's done a wonderful job. But he is tender with Wu, too. He puts his arm around him, and they have a history, as suggested by the paternal ambiance mentioned earlier. When Hammond recruited Wu, he told him universities aren't the intellectual centers of any country any longer, because all the really important discoveries are made in private labs now. The laser, the transistor, the polio vaccine, the microchip, the hologram, the personal computer, magnetic resonance imaging, CAT scans, the list goes on and on. These are discovered in private labs. His recruitment is successful, too. But now that the processes were mature, that making dinosaurs at Jurassic Park has become so routine, Hammond doesn't really need Wu anymore, we're told now in 25. And he doesn't want to go to Phase 2 or Version 4.4 or even talk about that anymore. And that's final. I see no reason to approve on reality, he concludes. Every change they've made has been forced on them by law or necessity. They expect to make changes in the future, to resist disease or for other reasons, but for now, they have real dinosaurs. That's what people want to see. And that's what they should see. That's our obligation, Henry. That's honest, Henry, Hammond tells him. This suggests he feels like Wu may be being dishonest with these changes, and Hammond seems to shirk at this as if it were distasteful. We have Dr. Henry Wu. Wu tells Hammond that the consultants accepted his explanations on how Jurassic Park clones the dinosaurs and wants to talk with his boss about, quote, the details or aesthetics on page 120. Wu, who is now 33 years old, has worked for Hammond all of his professional life, we're told on page 121. Wu is pitching, quote, phase two and restocking the park's animals with version 4.4, which has aesthetic and practical implications. This is because the dinosaurs are, quote, too real, just as Grant had said in the last chapter. How fast they are has been greatly underestimated. People won't feel like they're seeing dinosaurs, but instead sped up monsters. And Wu's argument is to give the public what they want to see on page 121. Wu believes the dinosaurs are, quote, unsatisfactory or unconvincing, and he could make them, quote, better. They move too fast, and they could, quote, easily breed slower, more domesticated dinosaurs, he says. He believes customers want to, quote, see their expectations, which is quite different. The park is about entertainment, which has nothing to do with reality. It's antithetical to reality, we're told on 221. We haven't recreated the past here. The past is gone. It can never be recreated. What we've done is reconstruct the past, or at least a version of the past. And I'm saying we can make a better version. On page 222, he tells us. Wu took some shortcuts to make the dinosaurs grow faster, reach adulthood sooner, because they had investors to consider, and they couldn't wait. Wu is unable to explain to Hammond the finer technical details about cloning, including the, quote, DNA dropouts, the patches, the gaps in the sequence that Wu had been obliged to fill in, making the best guesses he could, but still making guesses. The DNA of the dinosaurs was like old photographs that had been retouched basically the same as an original, but in some places repaired and clarified. Wu stresses the dinosaurs have even surprised them. 
all the containment units aren't up to spec with these unforeseen and incredibly active animals that they've cloned. Their entire array of devices are unsuitable for controlling the dinosaurs, and Wu believes they need to make adjustments on page 123, we're told. But his arguments are falling on deaf ears. Wu was recruited by Hammond at the age of 28, while he was a graduate student at Stanford University in Norman, Norman Atherton's lab. Recall Atherton was Hammond's brilliant geneticist that was the linchpin in the Pachyderm Portfolio fundraising campaign. Wu was recruited in 1984, two weeks after Atherton's funeral, while everyone associated with the lab was worrying about their careers. Wu felt like he would probably go into research at a university somewhere, but Hammond convinced him otherwise. Hammond's recruitment pitch was unforgettable to Wu on page 123. As a man eager to make his mark, Hammond had his complete attention. He was offered a five-year commitment and a $50 million in funding to take a crack at the impossible. The work involves cloning reptiles, he was told, and doing it quickly, and the work will likely be publishable, though Hammond is evasive on that point on page 124. Wu feels like the agreement he made with Hammond wasn't entirely honored. He still has people telling him what to do, was put under fearsome pressures, and they were doing avian cloning, which is much more difficult than reptilian cloning. For the past two years, he'd become basically an administrator, supervising teams of researchers and banks of computer-operated gene sequencers, which wasn't what he wanted to do, or had agreed to do, on page 125, we're told. But he succeeded in his work, and felt he was owed some say in what happened by virtue of his expertise. But he feels like he's not needed anymore. Making dinosaurs at Jurassic Park has become routine, and the processes are all figured out, and Hammond doesn't need them. The other character that we have mentioned is Norman Atherton, the brilliant geneticist behind Hammond's Pachyderm Portfolio fundraising campaign. Atherton died of cancer in 1984, which threw his lab into confusion. And Wu was his most promising doctorate student, we're told on 123. Some localities, we have Hammond's Bungalow. Hammond's Bungalow is elegant, set back among palm trees in the northern sector of the park with an airy and comfortable living room fitted with a half dozen video monitors showing the animals in the park, we're told on page 120. There's a coffee table, too. That's all we're told. Wherever Hammond recruits Wu from, we get absolutely no setting details on where it, this happens, but it was likely in California somewhere. Stylistic techniques. Italics. We have italics being used to show something Hammond finds ludicrous or laughable a couple different times. Domesticated dinosaurs, where he, he says in page 121. And if you want to do something important in computers or genetics, you don't go to a university he says on page 124. And then Hammond continues to use it as a function of rhetoric, adding emphasis that will show Wu what becomes the centerpieces of his arguments. You've done a hell of a job, a hell of a job, and it's finally time, he says on 122. Here the italics are helping Hammond be persuasive. They're a function of rhetoric. If you want to get something done, stay out of universities. I'm talking about work. On page 124, he says, Excuse me, Henry, I do realize, he says on 125, every change they've made has been forced on them by law or necessity. They may make changes in the future to resist disease or for other reasons, but for now that they have real dinosaurs, that's what people want to see, and that's what they should see. That's our obligation, Henry. That's honest. In each case, he's clarifying his difference of opinion and making it clear it's his opinion that counts around here. And finally, Italics emphasizes serious concern for the park in Wu's view. We've got a whole array of devices now, and they're all too slow, he says on page 122-123. Here, the emphasis shows exactly what's problematic. All their devices are too slow. The M-dash. The M-dash is employed in a variety of means again in this chapter. Primarily, it continues to be used to illustrate someone being cut off or interrupted in their thoughts or dialogue. Uh, quote, the dinosaurs we have now are real and M-dash on 121, as Hammond is interrupted. This ends Hammond's argument, 
and this might be so that we can get a pause and have some of Wu's backstory. It could be because Crichton didn't have much more of a persuasive argument for Hammond to be making here. I don't know. Uh, quote, Guesses he could, but still making guesses. The DNA of the dinosaurs was like an old photograph that had been retouched, basically the same as the original, but in some places repaired and clarified as a result, M- on 122. I know, but you don't realize... M dash. Wu is interrupted on 125 again. It's also used as sort of a parenthesis where we get a, a concurrent related comment mid sentence. You've done a hell of a job, a hell of a job, and it's finally time. And we got the M dash kind of making that repetition um, stand apart from the rest of the sentence. And finally, it's used to separate a preamble from the point in a sentence. Quote, we've got a whole array of devices now, M dash, and they're all too slow. Ellipses. In the conversation between Hammond and Wu, there are lots of ellipses as they're feeling each other out, measuring their words against each other on page 121. The empty space offers an opportunity for the other to show their cards, so to speak, as they make their arguments in favor and against, going to version 4.4. Rhetorical questions. Hammond outlines how proper procedures at universities are a bane to his dreams. What must you go through to start a new project? How many grant applications? How many forms? How many approvals? The steering committee? The department chairman? The University Resources Committee? How do you get more workspace if you need it? More assistance if you need them? How long does that all take? A brilliant man can't squander precious time with forms and committees. Life is too short and DNA too long, he says on page 124. He doesn't expect actual answers to this. He's just showing that there are barriers and red tape and he is too old to wait for that stuff anymore. Semicolon. So the semicolon conjoins to independent but related clauses in a sentence, replacing a conjunction... And a conjunction is anything like saying and, but, or, nor, for, and stuff like that, yet, etc. So we've got Atherton's funeral, and Crichton conjoins a couple sentences without conjunctions, preferring the semicolons instead. Quote, Atherton's death had thrown the lab into confusion as well as mourning. Semicolon. No one knew what would happen to the funding or the doctoral programs. There was a lot of uncertainty. Semicolon. People worried about their careers. That's on page 123. Opting for the semicolon, you read these quickly. They're quick and clear statements, but they don't present as like sentence fragments. If this were four very short statement sentences, it'd almost feel like point form notes or something like that. And so the semicolon works pretty good here. Yet Crichton could just as easily have used and instead of the semicolon. For example, Atherton's death had thrown the lab into confusion as well as mourning and no one knew what would, uh, would happen to the funding or the doctoral programs. There was a lot of uncertainty and people worried about their careers. It changes the pacing, though, and that pacing makes it feel more frenetic, increases the anxiety just a little. Quick, consequential problems being listed like this does feel a bit more desperate, and so this might have been a pretty good choice for Crichton, demonstrating Wu's vulnerability and Hammond's opportunism. So that's pretty neat. Parallelism. Atherton's death had thrown the lab into confusion as well as mourning. No one knew what would happen to the funding or the doctoral programs. There's a lot of uncertainty. People worried about their careers. Here we get you know, those same two sentences we, we had before, we get two sentences constructed identically, one right after the other. Again, parallelism draws attention to these comments, adds extra emphasis, almost multiplies the statements by a factor of two while you're reading them. Even though it's only written once, of course. The parallelism makes this sentence, which we've already described as frenetic and anxiety-inducing, and doubles it up. So it's a powerful little moment, and it's a good job by Crichton, even though it happens very, very quickly. 
literary techniques. We have the similes. Uh, quote, as if he smelled something disagreeable on page 120. Here, Hammond is already showing his cards that he doesn't want to get into this conversation with Henry. This is something apparently they've already discussed at length, and Hammond doesn't want to hear about it anymore. All that connotation is presented with him wrinkling his nose as if he smelled something disagreeable. Quote, like film running too fast on page 121. We can picture those old-timey baseball clips of people running the bases, and because the frame rate was low and the playback was quick, the images appeared much quicker than in reality. Apparently the dinosaurs look just like this because it's expected that they would be slow, which they've proven not to be. Quote, the DNA of the dinosaurs was like an old photograph that had been retouched. And we can imagine an old photograph and how they're a bit too smooth when they get retouched. They, they're missing some of the details because it all got added in afterwards. And perhaps they're overly simplified because there wasn't enough data in the original source material for an authentic reproduction. So this is a neat simile as well, that the DNA has been simplified in some ways, that it's not perhaps authentic. Uh, we have some continuing motifs like responsibility and safety. Here Hammond outlines how proper procedures at universities are a bane to his dreams. And we went through all of those rhetorical questions earlier. What must you go through to start a new project? How many grant applications? How many forums? How many approvals? Etc. Etc. These are systems of control for the purposes of safety and probably ensuring that money is spent efficiently and perhaps for safety or liability purposes. To want to race past these mechanisms of control is to open yourself up to greater risks, which may be irresponsible and definitely would be if lives are placed in danger. So that's uh, another element of responsibility and safety that's at play right now. And as well, we have the illusion of control, which we've described as a hoax in, uh, in earlier instances. Uh, once again, we get the idea that a hoax is showing people what they expect to see. When Wu says that the dinosaurs have to be changed, slowed down because they're too fast, is not what people expect. And Hammond is outraged. No, the dinosaurs must be authentic. They must be real. This is honest. Them being real not what people expect, is what makes them not a hoax. And so this idea that hoaxes are omnipresent is referred to again in this moment, but it's sort of inverted. The distinction is important here. Here we're seeing that the dinosaurs are not a hoax. The dinosaurs are authentic. The hoax is the illusion of control over those dinosaurs. The safety measures and protocols they've put in place, even though they've done it all without oversight, applications, permission, or approvals, again, as we had just said, is a high-risk method. The systems of control are a hoax. Their safety mechanisms only show them what they expect to see. We know that they're not sufficient, as is mentioned in this very chapter, that the animals are too fast for the safety measures that were developed. All their nets and tasers aren't effective on these unexpectedly swift animals. So here we get a very interesting representation of the illusion of control and the authenticity of what's real. They're very interesting. Uh, the dinosaurs. There's an argument that creating dinosaur hybrids in the Jurassic World movie, there's this argument that creating dinosaur hybrids is, you know, a big part of the original text. That movie makers, when they decided they were going to put hybrids into their films, were employing uh, something that was created and, and put into the novel Jurassic Park, that it's true to the source material. That Henry Wu was already scheming up crafty science. The argument being that hybrids aren't stupid, they're just a natural progression taken straight from Crichton's original text. So let's be clear here and now, that's not what the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park are in this novel. For all intents and purposes, we're to read these animals as legitimate, pure, actual dinosaurs. Completely authentic, okay? There are dinosaurs of multiple genders, they are successfully breeding, the lysine contingency isn't really a thing, see my discussion on the sketchy science in episode 24, Control. And Wu says that the animals are already modified from real. 
with inserted genes to make them patentable and to make the, them lysine dependent. And they've done everything they can to promote growth and accelerate development in adulthood on page 222. This was because they had their investors to answer to and they needed quick results. Wu wasn't making the argument that they needed bigger, scarier animals for the public. He was saying these animals are already too big and too scary. This is entertainment. They're not real in the first place, argues Wu. They've already changed the dinosaurs, but each change was forced on them by law or necessity, and they expect they'll make changes in the future to resist disease or for other reasons, but for now, they have real dinosaurs. That's what people want to see. That's what they should see. That's our obligation, Henry. That's honest, says Hammond. Hammond was keeping people like Wu from making changes, and perhaps that's for the best because, frankly, almost all the changes that Wu does make to the dinosaurs fail. He believes he can, quote, easily breed slower, more domesticated dinosaurs, but in the end, all their control mechanisms have already failed. All the little contingencies they bred into their experiments were failures. The irradiation, the gene denial, uh, like the Dilophosaurs are shown to be different genders. They are performing a mating ritual when the raft floats by on the Jungle River. Um, and the Dilophosaurs weren't even among the dinosaurs listed using the amphibian, the amphibian rana, or the DNA. So that's another example of just the dinosaurs are breeding. The dinosaurs are different genders. All of these control mechanisms have failed. To think that Wu could have somehow whipped up some new animal successfully doesn't hold water. And let's just face it. Wu succeeded in creating authentic dinosaurs to start with. The DNA, the life found a way sort of thing. And all those control mechanisms, they fell short. Uh, there's a concept here on recreating versus reconstructing. This Park is about entertainment, which has nothing to do with reality. It's, quote, antithetical to reality on page 221. We haven't recreated the past here. The past is gone. It can never be recreated. What we've done is reconstruct the past, or at least a version of the past. And I'm saying we can make it a better version, says Henry Wu. What's the difference between creation and construction? Creation fits into that God complex we're talking about with Hammond and how he embodies that uh, that God complex. Construction is a far less mystical perspective. Hammond is the dreamer, Wu is the engineer. They both envision living, breathing dinosaurs, but one sees it as creation, the other sees it as construction. And maybe this shows the fundamental difference between the dreamer and the engineer. One believes they are creating from their vision, and the other is constructing from blueprints. This may not be anything more than a difference in perspective from the characters aptly identified by Crichton. Wu will be further described as, quote, just an engineer and thin-telligent by Malcolm, that the big picture eludes people like Wu, whereas Hammond is the creator, bringing his dreams to life, but also considered a delusional fool by Malcolm. I guess in either way, Malcolm doesn't like these guys. And maybe, maybe there isn't a great difference between creation and construction. It was just a, an interesting dichotomy between these two people who are, are not sharing the same vision right now. Episode 1, The Introduction. In episode one, the introduction, I suggested that Hammond and Crichton's characterization of the biotechnology industry were carefully aligned, that they share the same characteristics. Recall, the biotech industry was described to be a place where scientists have no ethics, science knows no limits, and people are playing with technologies that affect every living thing on Earth, where genetic research continues at a more furious pace than ever, but done in secret and in haste and for profit. <laughs> Hammond here woos Henry Wu, and I think that naming is intentional, away from his more pure research ambitions at a well-regulated university for capitalist purposes. Recall, Wu is doing this because he's, quote, a man eager to make his mark, on page 123. Quote, the work involves cloning reptiles and doing it quickly, we're told. Is it publishable? Eventually, we're told. And here we are. The research, it's being done quickly. It's being done in secret, and it's being done for profit. 
Once again, I believe Hammond is literally built as a characterization of the unregulated, unethical, unlimited lust of the biotech industry that Crichton 4 warns us about in the very beginning. Park management. This part gets me the most. Remember back in 87 when we started to build the containment devices? We didn't have any full-grown adults yet, so we had to predict what we'd need. We ordered big taser shockers, cars with cattle prods mounted on them, guns that blew out electric nets, all built specifically to our specifications. We've got a whole array of devices now, and they're all too slow, we're told on page 122 and 123. Quote, we've got to make some adjustments. You know that Muldoon wants military equipment, LAW missiles, and laser-guided devices, on page 123. So take those statements and couple them with what we're told in episode 12, Hammond, that it was built with the goal of displaying 12 animals. But they've bred 283 herds of animals on this island, on page 61, we're told. Recall, as was said in that earlier episode, the planning and fundraising were to prepare a park that was suitable for 12 animals, securing a facility that could accommodate 12 animals, installing systems and parameters that were engineered, designed and constructed to accommodate 12 animals. And now we're seeing that even the control mechanisms were specifically designed for those animals. Only the 12 of them are proving to be far more agile, active, and fast. Their weaponry, their whole array of devices are too slow. And this probably feeds back into that control is an illusion, control is a hoax. Their overly ambitious and hasty quest for profits are obviously going to be their downfall here. Timeline. This is a little wonky, but hear me out. We're told that Wu had a five-year timeline to, quote, take a crack at the impossible, that he was recruited in 1984, and that the park is a year away from opening as of 1989. So technically, he's burned through four years and $40 million. The park was due to open on September 1990, I believe, we're told on page 47, and if Wu is four years into his work, that means he would have begun in 1985. We know that Grant terminates his contract with InGen because... The late-night phone calls on what to feed infant hadrosaurs from Gennaro were pissing him off. That was in mid-1985. So if Wu only began his work in 1985, and only midway through that year, they already had dinosaurs hatching, knowing that they take two months to incubate with only a 0.4% success rate, he must have launched with like some serious effort. For him to have just started in early 1985, and to already have results that are pissing off Grant in the middle of the night later that year, he must have had success almost immediately. Like, he cracked the impossible on day one and was hatching dinosaurs almost right away. So that's pretty impressive, if you read the timeline the same way I do here. So that's our little story about, I guess, Henry Wu and the trials and tribulations since he entered into his, his new career through the misguidance of John Hammond. A big thank you to my guest today, uh, Christoph Oaks, for coming back and being on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. And I want to sign off also thanking you for joining me. If you'd like to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, please do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, you can drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the Worst of Them All, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or you can find me on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also not that too. Until next time.